So we look at Luke 2, Luke chapter 2 again, and uh, we look at verses 6 and 7, Luke 2, 6 and 7. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. We're never to forget, and the carols that we sing remind us of the identity of this child that was wrapped in swaddling clothes and was put down in a manger. Um, He who built the starry skies, we just sang those words. Uh, Lo, within a manger lies he who built, well, the Milky Way. Our galaxy, the vastness of this universe, and here he is then, lying in a manger. We read the words of Gabriel, he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, his kingdom will never end. So this baby then is um, the son of the Most High. And what immeasurableness and, and loftiness lie in those words. And they focus all on the little Lord Jesus asleep on the hay. So whatever the, the Most High God is, and however he is to be adored and, and loved by us so, we would transfer that understanding and that affection to this child. Uh, uh, He is the God of absolute power, of uh, infinite sovereignty and omnipotence. Um, How can we be afraid of anything or anyone? We're meeting with him again tonight. And uh, he'll be with us as he's been with us all through uh, 2015. And he's going to be with us in, in the future. When we speak to him, when we pray to him, I can't pose. I've got to respond to my understanding of of this God. And this God is the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. And it demands reverence and godly fear, doesn't it? There's nothing more beautiful in worship than reverence for the the living God. if anything makes me shiver, it's irreverence. If I hear on, on television uh, a, a, a person being interviewed and they say, my God, or they say Christ, or they take the Lord's name in vain, you know, I can take a heretical sermon. I can read a, an article by Richard Dawkins, and that doesn't bother me. But to hear blasphemy, irreverence towards Jesus Christ... It causes uh, real pain because it really, it's really bringing God down to our level. And so he is the son of the Most High. So that means he's higher than the angels. He's higher than the archangels. He is higher than the glorified saints in heaven who've been transformed into his image. And yet he is born in something like a cave The high and the lofty one who inhabits eternity came down 
the back stairs into Bethlehem. Um, he veiled the light of his glory when he appeared there in, in the manger. And he became then Mary's firstborn son. The great God, the infinite God. The God who knows all things. The God who is everywhere present. The God who has all power and all authority. The God who only has to think it. And uh, servants of a centurion are immediately healed. A God who only has to say, let there be light. And the whole of this vast cosmos is filled with light. He's lying in an animal's feeding receptacle in a cave in Bethlehem. He's taken to himself a body which he will have forever and ever. A man there is, a real man, today at God's right hand. And he has arms and legs and a chest and a stomach and all the internal organs and a beautiful face with nose and eyes and a mouth and cheeks and all the interior organs are his and he is there um, now at the beginning of his life, on his birth, the day of his birth, he is there. Um, a true human being. I'm trying to kill the ancient heresy of docetism. Um, the docetic said that Jesus Christ was God, but that he didn't have a true human nature. Uh, his body looked human, they said, but it wasn't a genuine human body because um, if it's a, a real body that you could put on a scales and weigh and touch and, and, and prick and blood would come, then it wouldn't be a, um, a, a real body because the flesh is necessarily sinful. That's what they said. It was a kind of apparition, a very excellent apparition, uh, like a hologram on Star Trek. Um, if Jesus Christ were not fully human, if he were not my bone and, and my flesh, then he couldn't possibly save a person, a man, like us. He couldn't become our redeemer. So uh, Luke says, come with me, let me show you how he was born. And he, uh, we go through the door into the, the cave and we see this, this baby. He's the eternal son of God, Luke has told us in, in chapter 1. He's two natures in one person and... There he is, when he's awake, he is looking around. Um, he's experiencing and seeing from a baby's perspective the other creatures in the cave with him, the immense cows that are looking down upon him. That experience of seeing things from our perspective is now entering into the Godhead in a way that omniscience mere omniscience itself could not enter. That God is learning by experience, not simply by his knowledge of everything, what it is like to live in a groaning world. So the little Lord Jesus looked up to them, the one who made donkeys and cows, the one who said cows and cows were created and donkeys and donkeys were created. Now this is the astonishment of the incarnation. The boy there is examining in close-up as a human being what he himself has made. Thrilled, astonished by what he has created. The first 
glimpses of our life in a fallen world, which the God-man has. He's setting off on a 33-year voyage of discovery. And it will end on a cross and in a tomb and the tasting of our death too. And now he is seeing things and he will see them and experience things from our human perspective. In every pan that rends the heart, the man of sorrows had a part. He sympathizes with our grief and to the sufferer he sends relief. And uh, 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 he wondered. He, he gloried in the creation that he saw around him. If you go to a Royal Welsh show and you see a Charolais bull looking the size of a hippopotamus or a rhinoceros, an immense, beautiful creature, and it just takes your breath away as you look at it. So here is this baby, this little boy, looking now, per- perceiving things there. So when we look into that cave, uh, we, we don't see the cobwebs and the rustling. We don't hear of little creatures running along the ground in the hay. We don't see the dust. We don't look at the, at the cows and uh, the asses that are there. We don't look at Joseph and Mary. We, we want to see the baby. We want to look into the face. That's what you do. When a baby turned up on our prayer meeting on Tuesday night, we wanted to look at the beautiful face of that baby, didn't we? And so, um, to see the face of Jesus Christ by faith is to worship him. Because there you see the glory of, of God in the face of, of Jesus Christ. So, um, by the whole messy process of the first birth through the birth canal and coming into the world and squalling and sucking its first breath and there needing to be wrapped up and cleaned. God came for our redemption. <laughs> he gripped his mother's finger like children do when you put it, your hand in, in their palm. Here in Bethlehem, six miles uh, southwest, of Jerusalem and uh, in the humblest dwelling in the whole community smelling strongly of that lovely combination of uh, um, animals and and hay and all the things there and there is the creator he who built the starry skies is there and soon he is at his mother's breast he became poor for our sake so he was immensely rich He thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but he's made himself of no reputation. He's now utterly, he's completely dependent on his mother, a teenage girl, and she quickly and naturally, because God has made her like he makes all uh, teenage girls, he makes them naturally to respond to motherhood. And she has to feed him and nurse him and change him. And so these first chapters of, uh, of Luke's gospel, they are uninventable, aren't they? They are incomprehensible. The eternal Son of God contracted to a span, born of Mary, laid in a manger, because there was no other place for his birth. So then let's ask, why then did God bring by this means his Son into the world? 
it could have been that Hannah had heard about it or Simeon and his family heard about it and they were midwives you know our stories that we tell one another how wonderfully God when our car broke down a car pulled up behind us and there was a Christian or the AA man who came along he was a Christian and they were so kind to us and we talked to one another about the wonderful provision and that's right for us to do it but there was nothing like that the two kids Joseph and Mary were on their own and they looked round and couldn't find anywhere, anywhere to stay except that stable. So, um, what, 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 why? Why did God do it? Why did he time the birth to be at the census when all the crowds came? Well, the first reason, uh, this place of birth reveals the depth of the human problem. When C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe came out in a, in a film version, then uh, Polly Toynbee, then the great hater of uh, the Christian gospel and the Christian ethic and the, the Christian truth, she reviewed it in The Guardian and she raged against the movie especially the climax of it where um, Aslan um, dies. And it's a, it, it, the message of substitution and sacrifice comes through deliberately by C.S. Lewis. She said, blood sacrifice is that which is most hateful in religion. We didn't ask God to do that for us. No, we didn't. That, that's true. The initiative was all of God. The, the living God required it. It's, it's part of who God is. And Jesus was born there um, not because of a decision of parents or an innkeeper or a lucky stumbling across an, uh, an empty cave and a, a place was available, but God in heaven then. Go back to the first cause, always. And God in heaven determined the cave. That is where my son will be born. He didn't send his son into the world because there was a combination of individuals from all the continents of the world who got together and said the only way we can be redeemed is by God sending his son to die on Golgotha's cross for us as the Lamb of God. Please, please send your son to die for us. It was God who, who planned it all. The initiative. The accomplishment was divine. So what is the problem of mankind? If it is necessary for um, he to come from highest bliss into such a world as this where the most horrible, terrible, unspeakable events take place week after week. We need mercy. We need forgiveness. We need an inward energy to live a holy and a godly life. And uh, for this to happen, God must come. God the Son must come. God the Spirit must come into each one of us. 
This birth had to happen in this way then. Uh, a virginal conception was essential. The cave, the manger in Bethlehem were necessary. The refugee flight into Egypt couldn't be avoided. It all had to do with the absolute theme of the great humiliation of uh, God's love that caused him by the means of the coming of his son to save us, to redeem us. If God sent his son to a pauper's birth, then all our hopes of pardon and life and glory are never going to be on what we're going to achieve in our life. Never. They're all going to be on the great achievements of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, what he did. That he humbled himself and made himself of no reputation. Took upon himself the form of a servant. Found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself even to the death of the cross. That was essential for our redemption. The second thing I want to say is this place of birth emphasized the state of humiliation which the Son of God had entered. He came from pre-existence. None of us did. None of us existed before our conception and begetting in the womb of our, our mothers. We began then. And we went through all the processes of embryonic development before we emerged into, into this world. But he existed beforehand. And he came to be despised and rejected among men. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He came Isaiah says, like a root out of dry ground, like a turnip, like a, a gnarled root of a tree. He had no place where to lay his head. He who was eternally rich became poor. You know that uh, sentimental Christmas song? Um, 50 years ago it was in the hit parade and uh, you'd go around schools to speak in schools and the children then had learned it. It's called the, the Little Drummer Boy. And uh, they imagined then that there was a drummer boy that accompanied the uh, three wise men um, who came to uh, visit the baby Jesus. And uh, the Magi um, come in to the house where they are and uh, they give gold and frankincense and, and myrrh and then they leave and then the little boy the little boy he goes in and he sees he sees the, the poverty of it all and uh, he doesn't have anything to give to Jesus and he looks at the baby and in the song he says I'm a poor boy too Now that's a great line. I'm a poor boy too. And any of you who know yourselves and know your own hearts and know your own need of grace I know that there's not a penny that you can give to Almighty God that's not been tarnished by your sin. And you are poor. Poor boys and poor girls and poor men and women. Aren't you? I'm a poor boy too. The little boy thought, 
as he saw Mary feeding him. He's going to be a poor boy like me too. That's how God sent his son into the world. He came to redeem us. And so it wasn't fitting that when, when he was born that he was clothed in purple. And that the trumpeter from the high gallery uh, uh, announced then to the crowd in the hall that by the blast of the trumpet they would know that the child has been born. And that the news would be taken by heralds around the whole of the empire. That there was a new baby emperor. He was born in a humble place and in the most lowly fashion. The two extremities, the bookends of the life of our Lord, are a stable and a cross. And between those two ends, his, his life is lived out in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. The one was the conception of the God-man. And the other is the climax, the goal. For this I have come into the world. The Son of Man must suffer. He must die. And uh, the the humiliation of, of the stable is a fitting anticipation of the shame of the cross. They're hand in glove. They bring together one, one great message of the extraordinary self-humbling. Uh, they are not inconsistent. They are not contradictory. They are one of a piece. They are not opposite. Through his life he, he wears what a carpenter would wear. And there was sawdust in his hair. And there was the smell of wood uh, upon him. And his hands had the, the marks of the, the hammer and the nails and the chisel. He associates with fishermen. And they bear the odor of the fish that they work with uh, every day. They wear peasants' dress. So when he comes into the world, he lays aside the insignia of heaven. His Bethlehem birth was uh, uh, his entrance into a life of total humiliation. The life of a servant. The Son of Man came not to be ministered to, but to minister to serve and to give his life a ransom for many and the birth tells us that doesn't it third thing i want to say is that this place of birth declares that christ is the king of the poorest of people he's the king of the poorest who is he in yonder stall at whose feet the shepherds fall he's the king of the poor of the disenfranchised, of the downtrodden, of the despised, of uh, those that depend on social security, those who are limited, a man, a woman of humble means and handicaps. You see them, don't you? The, uh, The news channels are full of the the visits now that they make to these refugee camps. And there they meet widows who've lost their husbands and uh, think they, they've been killed, they've been arrested. And to children who are begging. And such poor people in such despair 
who've been driven out of a job and a home and can't ever return and don't know what the future is and they're locked into those vast refugee camps. I've walked with Keith around huge slums in Kenya. Huge. Open sewers uh, running along at the side of the road. I was taken in Manila uh, to a similar vast slum and there we visited people that uh, Brian Ellis and the Kubao church are ministering to such what a wealthy congregation we are what wealthy individuals we are compared to them and we're taking the a gospel that speaks to them we're not ashamed of the gospel that the gospel then isn't for the intellectual high flyers or for um, wealthy people, but that, that we can go into those places and we can speak to them. We've got good news of a Savior who came so low in order to redeem them. Jesus always relates to them because he was one of them. He didn't have to um, um, adopt and fake a working class accent like um, some people do um, who are famous violinists and used to have a posh accent uh, an upper class accent and deliberately then um, laid it aside and and talk with in uh, an Essex accent. He, He didn't have to change his accent. He didn't seek for street cred by pretending he was something he wasn't. He was born in a stable and first slept in a manger. One woman might think, what have I got to offer to to God? If God knows all about me and the falls I've had and the the bad decisions I've made in my life. I'm just a nobody. I'm just a nothing. But Jesus notices her and Jesus smiles at her and Jesus invites her to come to him that there is grace and forgiveness and new life that he has. He talks to a woman at a well and five men she'd had in her life and now she's living with someone and he has something to say He must go to Samaria to see her and speak to her. So the angel says uh, later to working men who are having to spend the night in the field under the stars with blankets around them and a fire to keep them warm. This will be a sign unto you. You shall find this baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. A sign. What was it a sign? This should be the sign. It was a sign of identity. It was a sign of welcome. The poor can spot. If you go um, to Buckingham Palace, you get off at uh, the Green Park and you go across the park and you walk across the front of Buckingham Palace then you go up Buckingham Gate and you get to Westminster Chapel for the conference. And you go, and there are always, even early in the morning, there are always crowds of tourists there. There are uh, Koreans and uh, Japanese and Chinese, and they're looking at 
I mean a fence, uh, uh, iron railings, 10, 15 feet high. Uh, and there are uh, policemen at every entrance. And they've got these uh, s- um, blockages that, that rise up like that. So a, a, a lorry couldn't go in um, full of explosive. It would be stopped and uh, it has to go down in order for any a- any cars or taxis to cross guard it be careful who are you why are you wanting to come here the guards are saying and then there are the soldiers with their rifles walking up and down outside shepherds could go shepherds could go This is the people's prince, a plebeian lord, with the blood of David running in his veins, chosen, chosen. And he's presented then this this baby as the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. He is presented. This child is this prophesied lord, and he's come for us. And so, uh, if we should think, well, I'm, you know, I, I, I couldn't come to a, a king of kings and a lord of lords. But you can come to him because he's touched with the feeling of our infirmities. He's been made uh, of dust and he remembers. And so he sympathizes with us because of that. He's the king of, of poor people. And then, fourthly, um, he's incarnate in in a stable because it's a place of lowliness where he can invite the most wretched uh, of men and women. Um, I can imagine humble people like my mother and like um, your your parents who, if they had an invitation to go to a, a Buckingham Palace to a, a, a tea party, they would just be horrified at the thought. They, they wouldn't know where to begin. They would say, oh, you must go, Jeff. You know, I, I can't go. They would say that, wouldn't they? My mother would say, my mother would say that. But to, to go when we had uh, chickens, she boiled the potatoes and chopped them up and put the other stuff that there, and she went out to the feeding trough, and she, she, she never said, um, I couldn't go to the feeding trough and feed the chickens. She couldn't say that. She, she could go there. You can come to this Jesus. You can come to him. However impoverished your background might be. You don't need to be instructed in divine protocol. What to wear, how to address a monarch, where to stand. Come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore, Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love and power. He is able, he is willing, doubt no more. So there was never a more approachable God than Jesus, the Son of God, 
No armed guards around him. No of these uh, tricks that uh, prevent then sudden destruction breaking out before him. There's an hand, hand reaching out to uh, lift up a little girl that's dead. He brushes through a crowd so that a woman can stretch out her hand and touch the hem of his garment and, and be healed. He is accessible. He's accessible to with sinners. He's accessible to you tonight. This Savior that is here with us. He's accessible. Re- reach out to him tonight. Uh, fill your heart with uh, longing and, and you speak to him and tell him of your need of him and that you want him now as your Lord and Savior. So this Jesus I'm telling you about, he breathed his first breath in a stable with all the rich country agricultural and zoological odors that were there in that stable. So that uh, there is no uh, dark investigative journalistic uh, secrets to be looked into. Where did he come from? He came from Bethlehem. Where was he born? He was born in in a stable. How did he spend the first year or so of his life? He, he was a refugee. He spent it in North Africa. He did. Write this down now. Um, the Holy Spirit says to Luke. So that people will know all about him. There are no skeletons in Jesus' cupboard. No cover-up. No trying to make him uh, something. No boasting that the people have about their educational uh, background and the, the good home and the private schools they went to. There's all fake. There's nothing like that with Jesus. He wasn't ashamed to be found in fashion as a man. He was little, weak, and helpless. Tears and smiles like us he knew. And he feeleth for our sadness and he shareth in our gladness, Mrs. Alexander says. It's all of the peace of his life. Um, his apostles were dismissed as ignorant and unlearned men. They came. They, they weren't born in stables, but they came from uh, um, uh, a similar poor background. And he's the sinner's friend. That one born there is now at the right hand of God. He'll be the friend of sinners forever and ever. So when we come to him, uh, we, we won't have to have a special pass. We won't have to show our bank balance. He will welcome us. It was in eternity that the stable birth and the manger cot were decreed. I will be an accessible saviour, he determined. And this is where the shepherds came, and this is where Gentile, Magi, from the east came, and fell down and worshipped him. And uh, later on they pressed to hear him. Five thousand men on a hillside, they pressed in to hear him preach. There were times when some of his... uh, uh, Followers had grandiose notions of what it was 
to uh, be a, a follower of Jesus. And so when uh, peasant women came with their babies and wanted Jesus to hold them and pray for God to bless those babies, um, John and, and James and Andrew and Peter said, get those women out of here. And Jesus rebukes them. Suffer the little children to come to me. And don't forbid them. Of such is the kingdom of heaven. He sent to them. We come to Jesus, don't we? Tonight we come to him. We don't come to a, a faith healer or to a bishop or to an altar. We don't come to the front. If Jesus was here in the front, I'd say, now come to the front. But he's not. The word is nigh you. It's in your heart and in your mouth. It's the word of faith that we preach and that you have believed. So he wasn't like Solomon born of David and born in a palace with a scepter and a fine crown and uh, a wonderful palace to live in. But the manger, a manger says, come, come then, come and have a look. Come and have a look. It, it speaks of tenderness and pity and a yearning longing for the poor people of the world to come and, and who is he in yonder stall? Who is this in swaddling clothes who lies here? Do you know who this is? Do you know? Do you know who this is? This child that he is. Can you say he's my saviour? You're talking about my saviour. Jesus Christ. The fifth thing I want to say to you is that this uh, place of birth was a mere cave. And so it was accessible to Anyone who wanted to enter it. Okay, you, didn't, you don't need a, a printed invitation to be able to walk on, uh, on a promenade. If you go to some of the, uh, the Riviera or you go to um, Lake Geneva and you want to walk around on a promenade, you discover only very, very few places are open to the public. That the hotels and the landowners, they go right up to the water's edge. And there is no pathway like there is in Wales that can take you a coastal pathway. You can walk around the whole of the country. There's nothing like that. You are forbidden. But in Bethlehem, there were no bouncers at the door of the stable that stopped anyone entering. It was free to all who would wander in. It belonged to the inn, but uh, there was no charge for looking in at the stable. No bill was given to Joseph and Mary for the hours that they spent there and the birth of the baby there. The health and safety inspectors would today give a hefty fine to such an innkeeper for allowing babies to be born in such an unlicensed place. Jesus is accessible. You can come to him. You can come to the ancient of days. You can come to the maker of heaven and earth. You can come. You can speak to him. You can talk to him tonight. When I stand here and... Uh, I'm, uh, I've baptized somebody and uh, I say something like if you want to talk to me then you, you're most welcome to come and talk to me but 
the most important thing is to start to talk to God. That's, that's, a, that's the beginning of grace. You start to, uh, you don't have to kneel, but you have to speak. You have, you have to say, Lord, here I am. I, I want to believe, and I find it difficult. And you have to, there's no formula, but you have to speak to the living God. I don't know if you exist, help me. You have to say things to God. You have to begin. God has not shut you out from the stable where his child lies. There is room. And uh, you're not to quibble that your Savior humbled himself so greatly because um, you're a sinner. And you can't pass judgment on him. To come to him, it's free for all comers. God put an expectant mother and her husband in a cave. And Mary laid a newborn child in a manger to show that the salvation that God has to offer is free to anyone who will come to him. To anyone who desires him. For I am meek and lowly. And ye shall find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy. And my burden is light. Sixthly, this place of birth was the normal dwelling place of beasts. Of sheep and oxen and donkeys and, uh, and cows. And he's there. Do you know men that are hostile towards God are compared in the Bible again and again to animals. When Paul writes to Titus about the island of Crete, he says, even their own prophets have said, Cretans are always evil brutes. This testimony is true. Isis, evil brutes. Isis. When Jesus speaks about the Pharisees, he says, they're like snakes. The poison of asps is under their lips. When he talks of cruel King Herod, he says, that fox, Herod. We've witnessed men in the 20th century Men like Hitler and, 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 and Mao and Stalin, so corrupted by sin that they were like beasts in the cruelty that they inflicted on millions of men and women. And so it is in, in, in the world today. Sin has made men worse than animals. Worse than animals. What animal would set fire to another animal? What animal would crucify another animal and kill him slowly like that? Our Lord was laid in a place where the beasts were fed so that beast-like men can know, though they've behaved so abominably, fearfully, there is mercy that is greater 
than all their sins. God's grace is vaster. Let men make a hell on this earth. Christ can reach them. Christ can raise them. There are books written now of people that were the son of Hamas and uh, they write about the upbringing they had and the hatred that dominated their lives and the cruel things that were done that they approved of. And they've been redeemed by the grace of God. Charles uh, Wesley is right when he wrote in one hymn, Outcasts of men to you I call harlots, and publicans and thieves, he spreads his arms to embrace you all. Sinners alone his grace receive. No need of him the righteous have. He came, the lost, to seek and save. When you reach the point when you abhor yourself, then ah, you're ready then for grace. You're ready to cast yourselves in arms that are outstretched to receive you and welcome you and, and sustain you. And lastly, the, the place of Christ's birth reverted to being um, a place where animals ate after, after Jesus was picked up finally and they went off. Uh, did they go straight to Egypt or did they go to, uh, to Nazareth first? Um, we don't know. But uh, then the animals returned. Uh, there wasn't a, a, a sacred feeding box, a manger, which from now on had magical, medicinal, healing powers, where if other children were laid in it, then they would become then supernatural children. There was nothing at all like that. It, uh, like the cross itself... Uh, the wormwood and decay and fungus destroyed it and it was burned and there was no magical power in it. If you put your hand on it, no potency sanctifies you. No illumination fills your heart and mind by it. Uh, if the shepherds who came and found the, the, the baby and his mother and came back the next day after Joseph and Mary had gone, they would be disappointed with a sheer emptiness of the place. The only significance of it was the child who was born. Unto you a child is born, unto you a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. He's the one, my friends. Don't mix up the means of grace with grace itself. It's not the means you need. It's not uh, the structures that you need. It's him, the God of grace. The God of grace will come into your heart and he'll come into your life. And he'll be your living Lord and, and Savior. He set apart that place for her to give birth and gave them a, a feeding trough for a, a few nights sleep. That was all. And then um, to Nazareth and to his life there, growing in favor with God and, and man. Don't say in your heart, 
who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the deep, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. It's in your heart. It's the word of faith that we proclaim to you. Bethlehem had its function. A stable had its function. A manger had its function for some hours or days and then its function came to an end and Mary had Jesus and she treasured in her heart all the things that the angels had told her. And uh, that's where the manger must be. Um, Come into my heart, Lord Jesus. Come into my heart. That's where he must now rest. That's where he must take up his abode. And that we, we take him with us and he energizes us to go anywhere and everywhere with him. Your heart is a dark cave without Jesus Christ. And it always will be. It becomes a holy heart and a renewed heart when Christ is received into it. When you ask him, you say, Lord, it's not much of a dwelling place. Come and dwell in me. Be my Lord. Be my Savior. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for the great humiliation of Jesus Christ. Thank you that he, he came so low to raise sinners so high. Thank you for the mercy that was shown to us, that all that was done for our redemption. We pray that all of us here may, may know and experience this grace in our lives and serve him cheerfully from this day onwards. For his glory's sake we ask it. Amen.